Today's episode is brought to you by Get Your Guide. Want to make your next trip unforgettable? There's an easy way to do that. Book a Get Your Guide travel experience. Whether you're into food, nature, culture, sports, immerse yourself in the things that you love on your next vacation. For example, you could check out the Sherlock Holmes tour in London. You could take a pasta making class in Rome, experience the San Diego whale and dolphin watching cruise, or go whitewater rafting in the Grand Canyon. They've got a night helicopter flight over Las Vegas, a New York City street art and graffiti tour. They've even got a Chicago river cruise and architecture tour. Uh, I have to stress that my family went on one of these uh, architecture boat tours of Chicago, and it's absolutely phenomenal. Uh, So, I mean, this is the kind of thing that you want to turn to get your guide for. Whatever you're into, you'll find an experience you love. Discover and book your next unforgettable travel experience at GetYourGuide.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell Tech Fest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop, powered by an Intel Core i9 processor, featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Your dream setup, amazing prices, and free shipping await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Joe McCormick. And in today's episode, we're going to be kicking off a series that we're calling The Sunken Lands that is about the idea of lands submerged under waters. Uh, Now, not too long ago, we did a series of episodes on the tendency people have to quite readily interpret any weird-looking, low-resolution photograph as evidence of our highly speculative theory of choice, uh, whatever you like. So here's a picture of a shape that maybe doesn't look organic in origin, so it is evidence of an alien spacecraft that crash-landed on our planet 5,000 years ago. But then, as we discussed in that series, often if you're able to get a higher resolution image of the same object or just get more contextual information, oh, wait, it's actually a rock. Uh, But one very popular genre of imagery for this exercise is underwater photography. It happens with, you know, images of things in the sky as well or things uh, just obscured in in various contexts. But underwater photography is uh, especially juicy here. I think because the conditions of of underwater photography naturally lend themselves to the kind of... uh, tantalizing uh, state of low information that that sets our imagination running wild and lets you fill in the gaps with whatever you're excited about. 
And when the weird-looking thing is underwater, the highly speculative theory people use to explain it might still be aliens, as we discussed in the example of, you know, one underwater uh, object, probably a, a glacial erratic boulder uh, that people did in some cases interpret as a crashed alien spacecraft. But another common explanation for weird-looking things underwater is the sunken civilization, most often Atlantis, but there are other candidates as well. And the idea of a lost civilization vanished under the sea is so captivating to people, it is hard to resist the urge to see an underwater rock with sharp corners and say, that's not a rock, that's a building. This is one of their ancient skyscrapers, and now it's hidden under the waves. Yeah, it's basically the same energy, but in a different temporal direction. Uh, instead yeah. of looking to, uh, to to aliens from beyond, you're looking for um, some sort of advanced civilization from the past that may or may not match up with realistic expectations of the past. Right. Uh, now, of course, in some limited cases, there are examples of human artifacts or human-built uh, edifices that can be found underneath the water now, and we'll probably talk about some of those examples. But in most cases, we can say with pretty high confidence that the thing, pe the things people are looking at in these images are not even intelligently designed artifacts. It's usually like a rock or some kind of undersea creature, something like that. Uh, and for various reasons that we might get into, even if what you find under the water was designed by humans, there are strong reasons for doubting anybody who says, aha, we have discovered Atlantis. Rob, I don't know if you want to talk about this now or later, but th there are reasons for thinking uh, Plato's allegory of Atlantis was maybe not even meant to refer to an actually existing place, uh, or if there, or if it was, there's no reason to think that it's anything more than a legend, that it's like a, a thing we should actually be looking for on Earth. Yeah, let's let's get back to Atlantis in just a second. Though we could we could easily devote an entire podcast or more to just chasing the idea of Atlantis around, but uh, we'll try and keep it contained. But while all of that is true, while Atlantis hunting is probably a, a misguided exercise, it's also true that there actually are some places on planet Earth where what is now the seafloor was relatively recently land, land that could have been or in some cases was occupied by humans. And so that's what we want to talk about in the series, places on Earth that are now under the waves but were once part of the world above. And while we're mostly, I guess, talking like we talk about the waves, we think about Atlantis, we think about the ocean. But we may also touch on some examples that are uh, that have been lost underneath rivers or lakes, mm. um, sometimes with man-made uh, lakes uh, uh, in play. Uh, but perhaps we'll come back to that in another episode. Oh, that's a good variation. Yes. Now, one thing to be clear about is that part of what makes these sunken lands interesting is merely a question of time because of course earth is you know is geologically active it has a a dynamic surface and over millions of years the crust of the earth undergoes changes there's continental drift there there are all kinds of changes that happen to the crust of the earth areas that were formerly exposed are buried areas that were formerly buried are exposed areas that used to be ocean become land areas that used to be land become ocean so we know that happens on a geological time scale what we're talking about here are lands that have become covered in water relatively recently, maybe on the order of thousands of years or even less. Yeah, yeah. So we have this, these basic geologic realities to keep in mind. And 
but then we but then we see them reflected in different ways in our our folklore, our mythology, our religion. Like even if you weren't if, if you were if you somehow avoided any scientific inquiry, uh, in, any scientific understanding about uh, these changes, you would perhaps be exposed then to religious ideas about these changes, uh, the, the various religious and mythological ideas that go way back in multiple different faiths involving global or regional flooding that is attributed to uh, divine causation in many cases. Mm-hmm. So g- given all of this, though, again, it should come as no shock that just the mere idea of sunken islands, lost islands, phantom islands, lost continents, etc., this has long stirred the human imagination. And uh, a, a lot has been written on this, but uh, interestingly enough, one of the more like well-regarded books on this, it, now it's a slightly older book, uh, came out, I believe, 1954, so it, it doesn't reflect uh, you know, decades upon decades of, um, of additional contemplation and discovery. But um, L. Sprague de Camp, who lived 1907 through 2000, wrote a book titled Lost Continents, The Atlantis Theme in History, Science, and Literature. Now, de Camp is an interesting fellow because he was uh, also an influential sci-fi author whose works include 1939's Less Darkness Fall. He was also um, a posthumous collaborator uh, with Conan creator Robert E. Howard. So he actually contributed quite a, a bit to the literary world of Conan the Barbarian. And interestingly enough, he served as an advisor on both 1980s Conan the Barbarian and Conan the Destroyer movies, as well as 1997's Cole the Conqueror, Whoa. Uh, which does not have Arnold in it, uh, but is an adaptation of a Conan novel. It is. Okay, so that's the one that's got Kevin Sorbo in it. Right, right. Kevin Sorbo. Um, but TV's Hercules. Yeah, so they. I think it was it was based on a Conan novel, but then they just changed it his name to Cole the Conqueror, who's another character in Robert E. Howard's world. But uh, I'm, I'm not super familiar with this movie or this other character. I've never seen that one, but my mind is aroused at the thoughts of scripts that Schwarzenegger said no to. <laughs> Now, uh, it is worth noting that Robert E. Howard was one of numerous pulp-era authors to make use of lost and sunken islands. And uh, a lot of this you know, does have to do with sort of the, the, the timeline of interest in these fantastic ideas. I'll touch on a few other examples from the pulp era in just a minute. But in this book, uh, DeCamp uh, discusses at length this idea of, of human fascination, uh, literary, um, pseudo-historical, pseudo-geological, uh, various uh, interest in this idea of lost lands, lost continents, etc. And he points out that a lot of it comes back to this idea of a lost land that is often situated uh, as some sort of utopia. It's a utopian ideal, or it's an, or it's an Eden. It is a place where uh, where we got it right, or things were right before the fall. You know, the, this idea that, okay, things are, are not great, but there must have been a point in time where things were in balance. And of course, uh, in, 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 in summoning this idea, there is at least implied the idea that we might be able to return to it, either by our own efforts or by some sort of divine intervention. Yeah, I think that's interesting, and that, that's correct. A lot of these stories about sunken lands uh, and the civilizations that inhabited them, uh, I guess there are some exceptions, but they don't usually seem to be, well, this is just another place like, uh, like many others, you know, that was just happened to be low-lying and was swallowed by the waves, or there was some kind of weather event. It almost always is idealized in some way. It's this place that was especially good or especially advanced or especially bad in some way. 
Yeah. And in, yeah, in some manner or another, this place ties it all together, which comes back to so many of these these uh, threads that we've discussed in conspiracy thinking and um, uh, and so forth. The idea that like, OK, I have found something and if true and of course, I believe it is true, it will explain all these other mysteries. Yeah. You know, you drop this in the middle of everything and it all makes sense. It's the master key. Yes. So I don't really want to do an exhaustive list of every mythical and fictional sunken land. I mean, there's just there's a lot there and a lot of them are also closely connected. Uh, I mean, just in fantasy alone, it's like who who anybody engaging in some broad world building is going to have perhaps an Atlantis or at least a, a lost land. I mean, it's just it's, it's too attractive a trope to give up on. Right. But I thought we might hit some notable examples in the main three or four categories you might consider mythology, fiction, pseudoscience. Uh, but I do want to note that some entries will move between these classifications because I mean, once once you introduce an idea uh, and other folks will come and and use it, maybe drift it into another category. So in mythology, I thought I might mention Avalon, of course, the magical island where King Arthur was taking, taken after uh, uh, sustaining mortal wounds. Uh, it's also uh, the origin place of his sword Excalibur and in general, just a magical land of Arthurian legend, possibly linked in origin to Fata Morgana or Glastonbury Tor. Uh, note that this isn't even the only sunken island in Arthurian legend, though. There are there are others. It's just, a, again, an irresistible, magical idea. Though, again, one that, that may be rooted in strange observations, islands that seem to be there but are not, that are, you know, Fata Morgana, that are due to a, um, a, 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 an illusion of one sort or another, or just a mistake of cartography, uh, of trying mm. to figure out what's out there and making mistakes. Both direct perceptual illusions and knowledge illusions give give rise to the idea of islands that used to be there, but now you can't find them. Right. And then, of course, in the background, again, the geologic reality that things do change. Yeah. And it is perhaps not beyond the realm of possibility that a lost island could truly be lost. It could have been a physical place and is no more. Another one is Brazil or High Brazil. This is This has generally nothing to do with Brazil, the South American country, uh, this is an Irish lost isle of myth, a phantom island that is covered by mist most of the year, but then that mist opens up, uh, sometimes featured on old maps and was sought after by cartographers. Because again, you have, anytime you have this idea of, uh, of an island that is thought to exist, and then it seems like it doesn't exist, I mean, that's, that's a mystery that has to be explored. Now, uh, it doesn't have to be an island, of course. You can also have coastal areas that are swallowed up. Uh, there's a, a mythical city um, uh, in uh, the traditions of uh, Brittany and France, um, and I may be pronouncing this one wrong, Yis, I believe. It's Y-S. Um, I, I assume it's not Ys. Uh, but anyway, it's allegedly consumed by the ocean, and it's featured into a number of creative works, especially uh, in French traditions. But of course, uh, the, the whole other realm is fiction, of course. And once something has been introduced in myth, given enough time, it may enter into fiction. And this leads us to Atlantis. Um, as we've already discussed, yeah, the lost continent of, Atlant of Atlantis, uh, so-called, has a prominent place in pseudoscience and conspiracy thinking and fiction. Um, among the many entries here, I, I have to point out a couple of things from 1982, one I've brought up many times before, but if you have not seen the commercial for Atari's Atlantis video game from 1982, look it up. 
It's marvelous. I think I saw this when I was like four years old, and um, it um, it scared and uh, amazed me. Rarely does a 30-second TV commercial have such a ch- bone-chilling plot twist. <laughs> it does. They really packed a lot into this one. Yeah. Uh, I have no idea if the game was fun at the time or is, is um, you know, well-remembered as like a retro experience. But as I was, I was revisiting this, because anytime this comes up, I have to go rewatch it. And then I discovered, weirdly enough, that the Brothers Hildebrandt did a wall calendar of original art themed around Atlantis the same year. And uh, I, I, I kept thinking, well, these have to be connected. There must have been some connective tissue here. If there is, I couldn't find it. But um, uh, it, it, I, I love the, the Brothers Hildebrandt. They did, of course, a lot of great Tolkien work, and they did Tolkien calendars back in the day. Uh, and yeah, they have this one calendar of Atlantis art with all sorts of like fantastic adventures going on, some sort of like demon lord, a dragon, and so forth. So many people don't realize that their origins are, of Atlantis are also based in fiction. Uh, you go back to around 355 BCE. That's when uh, Greek philosopher Plato discusses the concept of Atlantis in a pair of dialogues, Timaeus and Critias. Uh, Atlantis is described as a naval empire that rules the Western known world, but they ultimately fail when they come up against the Athenians. Then they fall out of favor with the gods and their world is consumed by the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, It's described along the lines as being like the, um, the, you know, the the ideal of Plato's Republic. But here's the thing. There's no other surviving mention of Atlantis in the ancient Mediterranean world, aside from commentaries and responses to Plato's work. So, in, in, in other words, there's no indication that this was a pre-existing idea, that this was something that was considered actual history um, or even like a pre-existing, I guess you would say, literary trope. Right. So it's not even clear that it was thought to actually be a place. Right. Now, among those various commentators over many years, it, it looks like many took it as met- metaphor or, and or as myth. Though you do have some folks that pop up that end up taking a more literal approach to it, um, or so it seems, based again on surviving texts. As such, you end up with a legacy of varying interpretations, which DeCamp summarizes as either taking it on as a fiction, finding actual societies that you can compare to Atlantis, uh, the investigation of land bridges and islands with Atlantis in mind, and also just the wholesale acceptance of the concept as historical truth. And, of course, this approach especially is widely regarded as pseudo-history at the very least. Mm -hmm. Now, again, though, just because something is introduced in fiction doesn't mean it stays in fiction. Like these, that's one of the interesting things about this, and I guess in general about about human imagination, is once something has has been imagined, it doesn't have to stay in that realm of sort of uh, safe unreal in fiction. It can move into other uh, categories of the unreal, the the mythological, the... uh, uh, you know, the pseudo-scientific, the pseudo-historical, the pseudo-archaeological, etc. I have to wonder if in thousands of years uh, there are going to be people being like, uh, you know, when Tolkien talked about the elves going to Valinor across the ocean, uh, did, w- was that referring to the island of Cuba, do you think? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and you do end up with that sort of inquiry. I mean, and part of that, of course, too, is you have someone like Plato who has such high standing in sort of the intellectual world uh, for, for, for centuries and centuries. Uh, you know, people are going to come back and, and, and reanalyze everything that they wrote.
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation vlogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 2024 Santa Fe, available early 2024. Now, in, ter- in terms of fiction, I will just mention in passing like a, a few examples. Uh, I, I love the work of Clark Ashton Smith, uh, and a lot of his stories involve lost continents. I think he has three different lost continents, well, though one of them is a continent from the future that doesn't exist now. So it's sort of kind of, again, kind of the same concept, but put in, put in reverse, taking into the future and saying in the future, there will be a new continent. And these are the sort of adventures that will take place there. Uh-huh. And of course, J.R.R. Tolkien got in on the action as well. We have the uh, the lost kingdom of Middle Earth, uh, Numenor. This was corrupted by Sauron in his fair form, and then it's destroyed in a cataclysm as the kingdom turns against the Valar. Oh, is Numenor swallowed by waters? I, ne- I never understood that. I, I guess I just thought of it as like a an empire that fell. Uh, yeah, it's like a star-shaped island, I believe, oh. uh, according to the maps. And, okay. Uh, the recent Amazon uh, series, I believe, depicts the, the, the fall of Numenor. Um, I'm having trouble remembering offhand. I need to revisit it before I put out another season, I guess. Oh, I haven't watched that yet, but I've uh, been meaning to, to check it out at some point. High production values. Yeah. Now, in the pseudoscientific world, and again, there's a lot of overlap with these, with these sort of loose categories, uh, you have the island of Mu. Uh, this is both a, a place of pseudoscience and fantasy, according to DeCamp, uh, proposed in the 19th century by British-American archaeologist and photographer Augustus Le Plongion, who used it to connect Mayan civilization to ancient Egyptian civilization. Um, again, this is one of those classic examples of, like, if, if this exists, it explains everything. Like, And, and uh-huh. getting into this idea of, like, well, look, we have things in Mayan civilization. We have things in ancient Egyptian civilization. They remind me of each other. There must be some, like, missing link to connect them. Otherwise, this doesn't make sense to me. 
that they could they both built pyramids sort of so the, that couldn't be explained by them both just figuring out how to build pyramids right right um but then on top of this british occultist james churchward uh, would go on to write about mu as well associating it with lemuria which we'll get to in a second, in works of pseudoscience that argue that it was the, not only was it this kind of like missing link uh, in terms of understanding global civilizations, but it was the location of the Garden of Eden and a cultural connection for various ancient civilizations. And then Atlantis also <laughs> enters the mix here, even though its origins, I think most uh, serious scholars would agree, is as a metaphor, as, is as a work of fiction. Various individuals have made arguments for the discovery of a lost Atlantis or have uh, gone all in on the idea of Atlantis. And according to DeCampo, a great deal of modern Atlantis mania stems from 16th century enthusiasm for the concept. Uh, and a lot of this uh, enthusiasm coincided with excitement for the new world of the Americas. Uh, so, you know, you, you, again, you have a lot of, uh, of energy, like new lands are discovered, and then you have this idea of Atlantis. And then people were proposing things like, well, are the Americas Atlantis? Well, no, but <laughs> I guess you can lean into that interpretation if you so desire. You know, I was just thinking about the, the sort of common strain of thinking that connects conspiracy thinking with uh with highly speculative lost civilization thinking and like why you would typically find both beliefs in the same brain uh like why people are drawn to one if they're often if they're drawn to the other the idea of a lost civilization that was vanished beneath the waves is a is a literal physical manifestation of the type of hidden knowledge or covered up knowledge that uh, that you know guides conspiracy thinking. Like if you're a you're a conspiracy thinking person, you think that there is a there is a mechanism somehow that explains all these disparate phenomena, but the but the nature of that mechanism is being covered up. It is hidden from you somehow. Usually it's a social mechanism. It's like, you know, an agreement of people or it's a, you know, an uh, extraterrestrial mechanism. There are aliens doing things or something like that. The lost civilization under the waves is kind of like that. It explains history in a similar way, but it has been literally physically covered up. Yeah, and, and again, it goes back to this idea of lo-fi information uh, to support an idea. Though, interestingly enough, like coming back to the idea of Mayan and Egyptian civilizations. So, obviously, like the, the, the Great Pyramids are, are not lo-fi evidence, uh, likewise, uh, you know, various uh, megastructures uh, in the Americas are not lo-fi evidence either. But if mm -hmm. you're using both of these uh, as evidence for this third thing that doesn't exist, then they do become kind of lo-fi because, again, there is there is not a thing there to prove. Uh, there is not this lost civilization that connects the two. You might also, though, be coming at them from a position of low information in that you don't have a lot of contextual knowledge about these these civilizations. And thus, you know, you just see like similarly shaped buildings and think like uh, has to be a common source between them. Yeah. Now, now I don't want to to make it seem like, you know, just the, the idea of lost continents and lost lands that aren't there, you know, are entirely rooted in, you know, conspiracy thinking and uh, and sort of non-logical uh, uh, inquiry. Uh, because another example to touch on, coming back to Lemuria, is this, uh, this was an 18th century hypothesis to explain similarities between species on distant continents. Uh, 
um, you know, we have organisms that look like like this here. There are organisms that look like this over here, and there's just too much distance. How can we possibly explain this? And so this was uh, this was one idea. Well, perhaps there is a lost landmass. Something is missing between these continents that would explain these species being in both places. However, a much better theory came around that of continental drift. Mm. But once introduced, again, the, the idea of Lemuria ends up taking on additional um, qualities to various interpreters, you know, becomes the cradle of human civilization in various occult worldviews and in various fictions. And you often see this kind of loop, uh, I think, with serious theories, feeding occult nonsense and feeding fantasy, feeding, you know, you know, things that are, you know, just purely enjoyable. And then that may feed back into to other things as well. Um, so there, there are more examples to, to be sure. And we may come back to some of these. Uh, but I think these examples nicely sum up some of the associations and ideas here. Um, it's kind of a missing link concept, a lost place that could more easily explain the world and or a lost golden age. And uh, in this, the concept is closely connected to the con- to various uh, ideas of spiritual lands just beyond the reach of mundane experience. So, mm-hmm. you know, there might be like a sh- like there's a Shambhala in uh, Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, I think there are various uh, kingdoms in Ro- Russian folklore, uh, you know, almost like cities in the sky that are just beyond reach. And uh, and you find these in various various forms. I mean, Avalon is is basically the idea. You know, this place that is now uh, beyond the reach of the mortal world. So across the whole spectrum of fiction, myth, legend, and obsolete scientific hypotheses, there have been ideas of lands that uh, were were covered over by the waves or vanished beneath the waters somehow. Uh, but now I want to talk about a real and firmly established provable example of lands that were in uh, quite recently sunk beneath the waters within the span of, of human history. Is it Atlantis? It is not Atlantis. Okay, so I want to start with uh, with an anecdote about a about a strange find, and a lot of my details here are coming from an article published in Archaeology Magazine by Jason Urbanus called "Mapping a Vanished Landscape." Uh, so, in 1931, one night in September, there was a British fishing boat called the Kalinda, which was trawling in the North Sea off the eastern coast of England around the county of Norfolk. If you're not familiar with trawling, it is a method of fishing where you drop a large cup-shaped net into the water and you pull it behind the boat. And there's midwater trawling and bottom trawling. Uh, with midwater trawling, you you know drag the net through the middle of the water column. With bottom trawling, you let the net sink to the bottom, and the net has weights that keep it stuck to the bottom and keep the mouth of the the net open, so the boat. Uh, drags the net along the seabed, sort of bulldozing the top layer of sediment and scooping up whatever is in its path large enough to get trapped in the net. The Kalinda was trawling off the coast of Norfolk, about 25 miles out, at a place where the water was roughly 120 feet deep, or about 37 meters. After hauling up the net from a bottom trawl, a guy named Pilgrim Lockwood, who was the skipper of the boat, noticed a big chunk of peat stuck in the catch. Uh, And bottom trawling often creates a lot of what's called bycatch. That term usually refers to unwanted animals that you get in the net that are not part of what you're fishing for. Uh, But also it just gets a bunch of objects from the seafloor because, again, it's kind of like bulldozing the top layer of sediment as it gets dragged along. Uh, So a lot of stuff ends up in the net, and that stuff has to be discarded. 
Now, this peat from the bottom, here's a really good word I came across. I've seen sources that uh, mention that these chunks of peat pulled up from the ocean like this were often referred to in England as moor log, M-O-O-R-L-O-G. Nice. Is there a band? I didn't check. <laughs> That'd be a good bog metal band name. Oh, yeah. I can, I can see the album cover right now with like a bog mummy on it. So the skipper, Pilgrim Lockwood, he's got this chunk of peat that's part of the, you know, not what they're fishing for, obviously, is stuck in the net. So he gets it out. He starts to smash the peat up with a shovel. But while he was doing that, he found something rigid lodged inside. And he actually said that it sounded, when his shovel hit this object, he said it sounded like it was clanging against metal. Uh, it was not a rock. He pulled it out, and what he found was a sharp instrument, about eight and a half inches or 22 centimeters in length, with a pointed tip at one end and barbs or teeth running most of the way down its length, like some kind of weapon. And it was a weapon. This is not a case where, you know, it was actually some deep-sea organism that, uh, you know, was mistaken for a human artifact. This was an artifact. This was technology. It was ancient technology. And this artifact came to be known as the Kalinda Harpoon. So experts from the British Museum studied the artifact, and they determined that it was the tip of a fishing spear from the Mesolithic period or the Middle Stone Age, which would have been somewhere between 10,000 and 4,000 BCE. It's an intriguing looking weapon. So it's got the sharp end, it's got the saw teeth, but it's also got these uh, ridges sort of gashed in it uh, along the, the opposite end from the tip. You know, I, it does remind me a little bit of the fabled weapon of Kukulin, the um uh, oh. that, you know, that was supposed to be, uh, in some cases, like barbed, like uh, like the like the, um, like the barb of a stingray. Yeah, though, yeah. Though, of course, to your point, clearly this is uh, this is not um, a nature fact. This is an artifact. This is something that was that was carved and made uh, through human craft and ingenuity. Yes, absolutely made by human hands. But that raises questions: How did this Stone Age weapon end up buried in peat? in the ocean more than 20 miles off the coast of modern-day Britain. Like, was it possible that ancient hunter-gatherers carried it out to sea that far on a boat or a raft and then dropped it to the bottom? At the time it was found, that seemed possible but not very likely. Today we know more about the Kalinda harpoon. Uh, according to the Norfolk Museums, the harpoon tip was made from the antler of a red deer. That's the species Cervus elaphus. And it has been radiocarbon dated to about 11,790 years ago. Uh, mentioned in the Archaeology Magazine article is another strange fact. A year after the Kalinda harpoon was discovered, scientists analyzed the pollen contained in the peat, or the moor log, from around where the spear tip was discovered, and they found something bizarre. Even though the peat was more than 100 feet under the water, it had been formed in a freshwater context, lakes and rivers and topside bogs, not ocean floors. So the person carrying the Kalinda harpoon all those thousands of years ago had not been a seagoer, but an earthwalker, possibly fishing in a river. Mm. And this isn't the only Stone Age human artifact recovered from the bottom of the North Sea. We can come back to that. Uh, but I want to move on to something else, because the Kalinda harpoon was not the first indication that there was something odd about the sea to the, to the east of Great Britain. I'd now like to read a passage from a book 
called Submerged Forests, published in 1913 by the British geologist Clement Reed. Clement Reed writes, quote, Most of our seaside places of resort lie at the mouths of small valleys, which originally gave the fishermen easy access to the shore, and later on provided fairly level sites for building. At such places, the fishermen will tell you of black, peaty earth with hazelnuts and often with tree stumps still rooted in the soil, seen between tide marks when the overlying sea sand has been cleared away by some storm or unusually persistent wind. If one is fortunate enough to be on the spot when such a patch is uncovered, this submerged forest is found to extend right down to the level of the lowest tides. The trees are often well-grown oaks, though more commonly they turn out to be merely brushwood of hazel, sallow, and alder, mingled with other swamp plants, such as the rhizomes of Osmuda. These submerged forests, or, quote, Noah's woods, as they are called locally, have attracted attention from early times, all the more so owing to the existence of an uneasy feeling that, though like most other geological phenomena, they were popularly explained by Noah's deluge, it was difficult thus to account for trees rooted in their original soil and yet now found well below the level of high tide. And ooh, thinking about the submerged forests, it gives me a spooky feeling. So at the lowest level of the tide, when, when the water goes back farthest, even all the way down to that level, you will sometimes find, especially if there has been maybe a violent storm that has shifted the sediment around and pushed sand out of the way, you will find uncovered tree stumps still rooted, apparently, in their original position. Trees can't grow in the salt water. So what was happening there? Yeah, this is this is enticing, and and it does remind me though that uh, something we've discussed in the past in the show uh, that you know through, for for most of human history we didn't have a high resolution understanding of the the world beneath the waves, and and so a lot of it was based on guesswork, and uh, and there were a lot of ideas about cities and forests beneath the sea and like this general idea that anything uh, that you certainly see in Western discourse, that anything that exists in the surface world would have an analog beneath the water. Uh, so you have a lion up here. Well, you have a sea lion under there. You have a horse up here. You have a seahorse beneath the waves. Oh, yeah. And you have people up here. You have mare people down there. Yeah. Yeah. So like they're, you know, you you have that huge category. You have these, you know, accounts of great floods and so forth. So there's a lot of there's a lot of like background mythology and observational data to feed into to any kind of discovery like this. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Before I found Zigazoo, I believed all social media was inappropriate for kids. But I feel great about my kids being on Zigazoo. Videos are moderated by actual people before being added to the feed. 
Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about mean comments on your kids' videos. And you need parental consent before joining Zigazoo. Bottom line, it's a space that prioritizes data safety for kids. Oh, but don't take my word for it. Zigazoo is KidSafe COPPA certified. So weigh everything Zigazoo has to offer. Maybe you'll zigzag too. Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 2024 Santa Fe, available early 2024. So how do you explain these submerged forests? In this work, uh, Clement Reed goes on to, to document and make all kinds of observations about them. But he reached a, a strange but uh, unavoidable conclusion. Sea levels were not constant, and the sea had to be higher now than it was in the past, much higher now than it was in the past, meaning that much of what was once the relatively shallow North Sea had actually been not a sea, but a vast alluvial plain, the hidden lowlands of ages past. And these lands were most recently covered with trees. There are still places today where when the tide is at its lowest, you, you can find indications that there used to be forests on lands that are now covered by the North Sea. And of course, recently enough for remains of, of tree trunks and stumps to still be preserved there. One commonly cited example is a place called Pet Level P-E-T-T, Pet Level Beach in Sussex, where uh, the remains of a forest can still be seen at low tide with indications of oak trees, elm, yew, and beech. Uh, Rob, I've got some pictures for you to look at. Both these pictures here are from, from Pet. But another example that I came across uh, is from the remains of a submerged forest that is still fully submerged. Uh, so this appeared in the media within the last decade. Uh, I was reading from an article in BBC News Norfolk and its attached uh, video segment. Uh, this was from 2015, and it was called Ancient Underwater Forest Discovered Off Norfolk Coast. And the report says that it was documented by a couple of research divers named Rob Spray and Dawn Watson. Uh, this was after a major storm had shifted sediments in an underwater region off the North Norfolk coast. So just like Clement Reed was saying, you know, it's especially after there's been some violent event, maybe a big storm moves the sediment around and uncovers things. Hmm. In an interview for this news segment, uh, Dawn Watson, one of the divers, describes coming across this region by accident. She said she had been swimming for a while. She was almost out of her air supply uh, toward the end of a dive when she came across an enormous mass on the seafloor. Uh, she says it was, quote, almost a standing wave of black stuff in front of me. It took me a while to work out what it was, and it was just wood shaped like a wave. So she says at first she thought it was a shipwreck. Maybe it looked like the hull of a boat. But then she realized it was actually a huge hunk of unprocessed solid wood, not the planks of a wooden ship's hull, but the trunk of a tree laying down horizontally. 
And the divers, uh, after examining this location, say that it seems to be the remains of an ancient forest, probably primarily oak trees lying horizontal. So the trees appear to have been knocked flat by some event in, you know, long ago. Uh, they speculate possibly outwash from a glacier, but we don't know for sure. And when you see the footage in this video segment, it's amazing how much in some ways it still looks like a tree trunk. You can even see what look like, you know, knots in the wood or maybe uh, trunk wounds, little holes in the trunk, which have now uh, charmingly been inhabited by starfish and crabs. Rob, I attached a screenshot for you to look at. You can see crabs getting down in the little hidey holes. Oh, nice. Yeah, there they are. And the divers in this interview emphasized that they almost missed it. It is pure luck that the forest was exposed by the violence of a recent storm and that they just happened to come across it at the end of a dive. But they also point out an interesting thing about uh, marine biology, just about undersea life. As soon as this buried timber from thousands of years ago was exposed, sea organisms flooded in, just like with, uh, in fact, we've done episodes on this in the past, like with shipwrecks. Uh, you know, that come to resemble in some ways the habitat dynamics of coral reefs, a hard surface at the bottom of the ocean quickly becomes a teeming habitat. Bottom-dwelling organisms can build a whole world around a solid floor. So maybe smaller organisms like the, the hard surface that they can attach to, or they like little nooks and crannies and pieces of shelter. They come in, they inhabit it, then bigger organisms come in to eat them, and it creates this, this whole ecosystem. Oh, and another thing uh, I've got for you to look at here, Rob, I, I took a screenshot of part of this uh, ancient submerged forest. It's just got starfish all over it, which we know from our recent headlessness episodes, the starfish, they're, they're not without a head. They are all head. So mm -hmm. we're just seeing like dozens of heads all smushing into each other here on this ancient tree trunk. <laughs> So you put all this together, these ancient human artifacts, miles and miles off the east coast of Britain, oak forest preserved on the on the bottom of the sea so that we can still see the stumps and crabs can make a home in the wood. What does all of that point to? Well, today scientists have firmly established what explains it all. This is not a highly speculative theory. This is clearly what's the case. It is all evidence of an ancient landmass known as Doggerland. Uh, so what was Doggerland? Doggerland was an area of what used to be dry land during the peak of the last ice age, when much of the world's water was locked up in polar glaciers uh, during the peak of the last ice age. And this land is now submerged beneath the sea. It was a large stretch of low-lying earth mostly flat alluvial plains extending north from the Netherlands and Germany, uh, connecting Great Britain to the rest of continental Europe. And at the eastern end, Doggerland seemed to have gone up against what is today uh, Jutland or, you know, the, the, the Denmark Peninsula. Wow, this is impressive. You included um, an illustration here showing uh, like what this would have looked like. Uh, well, not an illustration, a map. Uh, and and it, is, it is quite impressive, like essentially like a, a, a thick land bridge connecting, uh, like you said, UK to mainland Europe. Right. So at the time, Great Britain was not an island, but a peninsula. It was connected mm -hmm. to the rest of Europe by land. So not all sunken lands 
are misinterpretations of ancient writings or uh, or pseudoscience or pseudohistory. There are actually sunken lands that played a significant role in ancient ecosystems, in uh, you know uh, how life developed on ancient continents, and were in some cases occupied by humans. And now, uh, despite the difficulty of trying to do things like archaeology in areas that are now underneath the, the sea, there's a lot we can know about them. So in the rest of this series, we're going to talk more about Doggerland, what happened to it, what we know about it, and more of the sunken lands of planet Earth. Yeah, so who knows what we'll get into, and who knows what will emerge from uh, from, from the, the deep darkness of the ocean or various lakes and rivers in the episode or episodes ahead. All right, we're going to go ahead and close this episode out, though. Uh, we'll be back on Thursday. Just a reminder, once more, that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a science podcast with new episodes, new core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We do Lister Mail on Mondays. We do we tend to do a short-form Artifact or Monster Fact episode on Wednesdays. And on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird movie on Weird House Cinema. Uh, if you follow us on social media, uh, check out those feeds because uh, we've our social media team has been putting out uh, uh, little little bits of content to, to let you know what the latest episode is, and uh, that includes some neat little video stuff in there. If you if you are on Instagram and you don't follow us, we are STBYM Podcast there. So give us a follow. We're trying to build up our our followers uh, after we lost access to our old account. And uh, yeah, what 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 else do you have, Joe? I can't think of anything else we lost access to. It's like a lost civilization. It's a, like a it's an Atlantis <laughs> that's sunk beneath the waves. I think it has a like an episode on airships, or maybe it's the Herzog interview, are right up there at the top. And then it's at some point after that, that account sank beneath the waves. Whoopsie, never to be reclaimed. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media. But now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. 
the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.